You guys did that well. I thought I was going to have to say quiet down and find your seats, but um, that was unnecessary. You must be here because you want to hear from the Word. Is that right? If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 1, verse 12. No, James chapter 1. We're going to go 1 through 12, verse 1 through 12. And I am just so thankful to be here. And this morning, we're going to be looking at being joyful in the midst of difficulty, joy in trials. And we all are going to face trials in life, and so we need to make sure that we are ready to face it. Now, our theme throughout the book of James is going to be that mercy triumphs. And so one of the really cool things about God is that he is merciful to us. And in the book of James, um, if you think about mercy, God pours out his mercy on people. He loves us. And mercy is God's kindness toward us in not giving us what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath. We deserve punishment. We deserve separation. But one of the things that God says is that on this earth, God pours out his mercy on everybody. If you're a believer, God's pouring out his mercy in your life. If you're not a believer in this life, God is pouring out his mercy on you. Now, once we leave here, believers get mercy forever, and unbelievers don't get God's mercy forever. But thinking about God's mercy and living in light of God's love for us is so encouraging, and it's that because of Jesus... God doesn't give us what we deserve. It's not our good works. It's not that we're good enough to receive favor, but we get favor because of what Jesus did for us. And one of my favorite verses is in the book of James. And this is a a verse that God's used in my life over this last year. And it just says this, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has poured out his mercy on us. And if you think about the book of James, the book of James, almost every section is dealing with God's mercy. For example, trials, God is merciful to us in that as we face difficulty, he brings good in our life through it. So God takes the bad things and makes them good. That's God's mercy. And God expects us to reflect that same mercy that we've received to other people. And so that's where using our tongue correctly, thinking about the fact that people are made in God's image and we need to treat people the way God has treated us. And so God's been merciful to us. We need to show mercy. And I think about that every time somebody does something that hurts me or every time I'm upset with someone, I just think, do I, do I need God's mercy? The answer to that is yes. And so I will happily display mercy to anybody who's done anything to me in my heart, in my attitude, And it's because God's been so merciful to me and I need it. And I just think judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. And since I need mercy, I'm going to display it. Okay, now you understand our theme. Let's talk about our passage this morning. But I do want to actually go to Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose, that's just a way to say for the people that God has saved. So that's a a phrase that means Christians. And so for every Christian, God works everything for the good. Now that doesn't say everything's good. When somebody gets in a car accident and a loved one passes away, that's not good. If, If you get mugged, that's not a good thing. But if you're a believer, God uses everything for good in your life. So it doesn't say everything's good, but it says God will use everything for good. So as you think about trials, there's two things that I think this morning, we're going to have five points this morning. I'm going to ask you why should you rejoice in trials and give you five reasons. But, But big picture, there's two things you need to think about when it comes to trials and difficulty in life. The first thing you need to know is that we can be joyful in trials Because our good God is in control of every trial you face. There is nothing that happens that God's not in control of. And by the way, that's a theological challenge. How can a good God who's all-powerful allow evil in the world? So that's the problem of evil, and it's amazing the things that people do to try to solve that. And I'm not going to try to solve it this morning, but I do want to just tell you this. God is in control 
of everything you face. There is nothing that happens to you that God says, ooh, I wasn't expecting that. God brings everything about. And that's actually one of the things that brings confidence as we face things. And the second thing is this, that God blesses us spiritually through every challenge that we face if we face it properly. And so not only is God in control of what happens, but God is going to use it to bless you. So think about those two things this morning, and we're going to continue on. I just want to say something about the book of James. We just taught on that a few weeks ago. We did a summary of the book of James, and so if you want to know who wrote it and all those details, listen to that sermon. But I want to tell you this about canonization, and this is just for free. I kind of want to throw it in there. Um, How did we end up with the books that we have in the Bible? Now, James was the last book that was added, in a sense, that was recognized. So when they were debating, okay, which books should be in Scripture and which ones shouldn't be, James was like that last one that they talked about and that they added. A lot of people really misunderstand the whole process of canonization. It can be kind of confusing, but I just want to start with you and just tell you this. If you don't know all the technical details, it doesn't really matter. If it's in the Bible, the 66 books, Genesis through Revelation, there's 66 of them. If it's in there, they're all the inspired word of God. But as they were discussing it, there were some things that they looked at. There were five tests. One is, is it authentic? Does it say things that are factually true? And there are a lot of books where people read it and they said, oh, this seems kind of cool, but it says, oh, this is from the Apostle Paul but they knew that that wasn't really Paul who wrote it and they didn't include any of those. So there's all kinds of debates nowadays about, well, who wrote Revelation and who wrote this and who wrote that? Well, Hebrews doesn't name the author, but let me just tell you, if it's named in scripture, that's who wrote it. And so one is authenticity. Um, Is it factually true? Is it consistent with all the other books in the Bible? Does it say something that's different? And by the way, for James, when it comes to faith and works, That's one of the things they had to think about is it kind of seems like the other side of what Paul was saying. And so that was something that they debated and thought through. But the reality is, and we'll find out when we get there, there's no contradiction between James and Paul. The other thing is authorship. Was it written by a man of God? So that was another one of the tests that they used. Well, James was Jesus' brother and one of the leaders of the church Is it authoritative? Does it claim to be inspired? Is it an inspired book of the Bible? And so the answer to that is yes. There's a lot of books that people have added to the Bible later. There are some other people who have more books than we do. But if you read the book, it says right in it, this isn't scripture. So does the book claim to be from God? And then this is the most important test. And that is, was it accepted and used by the early church. You think about that. In Thessalonians, Paul writes and he says, some people have disturbed you by these things that they're saying, claiming to be me. And they're saying that that the resurrection's already happened and you've missed it. And Paul says, don't believe that. And then you think about the apostle Paul when he was writing letters, he always sent them to a church by someone from the church that was ministering with him. And so a guy from that church, he'd send it. So when a guy showed up, people had known him since he was a little kid. And then they they saw Paul show up and take him on one of his missionary journeys. And then that guy comes back and says, hey, here's a book that Paul wrote. This is scripture. And so the early church, they knew which books were real and they knew which ones weren't real. They rejected the ones that were false. They accepted the ones that were true. And so when there was a council 300 years later, that said, which books are in the Bible? It was not a group of men saying, we're spiritually in charge. Let's decide which books people will accept as scripture. The authority was never on the group of men. They didn't get to decide. There was nobody in charge of which book went into the Bible. The authority was the Holy Spirit working through all the churches, which letters did they accept? And so the books are authoritative, and that council of men just identified which ones. Because 300 years later, it's very confusing because you weren't there. You weren't the one who said, oh, yeah, this is, this is uh, you know, Timothy, and we remember him, and we know he was traveling with Paul, and he brought us this book. 
And so 300 years later, it was important to go back and to think carefully about which books are used, which ones are scripture, and they just identified the ones that were. Now, the book of James, that was one of the other struggles is that it wasn't as widely used as some of the other ones. Why is that? Well, it's because James is a very practical book. It's saying, here's the truth, and here's how you live that out. And in those early years of the church, there was all kinds of false doctrine going around. And so they grabbed the books that helped us know, okay, what is Christianity? What isn't Christianity? That was more the focus, and it's why James was less prominent in all the places. And there there are some other reasons about circulation and things like that. But I just want you to know that James is included James should be included, and there are lots of books that were not included. And so, all that to say, we should study James because it's God's word. (laughs) So, that was all for free, and I spent more time on that than I meant to. Michelle's checking her watch. She always tells me afterwards if I went too long. So, we're going to be learning this morning how to handle hard times I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a friend of mine. He's um, actually one of my favorite preachers. He was a friend of mine in seminary. And um, he and I were going and planning a camp. We were just traveling all over looking for a place to hold a camp. And, and I had found out that he had a son who had died. And I'm sitting at lunch and I'm talking to him and he just told me the story of what happened. And he said, so um, Roger, we... We had a baby, had a birth defect in his heart. We had taken him to the doctor. He, you know, he had lived for some time. We took him to the doctor, and they just needed to do a checkup. And we had driven a long way, and, and our, our parents were all coming down to meet us at the hospital. And the doctors just said, hey, everything's fine. This is just a routine checkup. It's all going to be good. So he called his parents, and he said, hey, you guys don't need to come. Everything's going to be fine. We're just, this is just a little thing we're going through, and then we're going home. And his parents said, nah, we're coming. So they drove down there. They meet him in the hospital. And they're back there taking care of the baby. And they're expecting to get the baby back. And these nurses and doctor come out. And they say, "Um, we're sorry. We don't know what happened. Your son just died. And and we thought everything was going to be fine. We have no idea why. We don't know what happened. But he just died. And they were really kind of stressed out. And he looked at them and he said, so I just want you to know, as doctors, I appreciate what you do. But I know why my son died. And they're like, what, why? And he said, my son died because God decided it was his time to die. He says, you're a doctor and you do the best you can, but you don't hold life in your hands but my God, he holds life in his hands. And that doesn't mean that as he faced this, as he and his wife faced this and approached it, that they were emotionally unaffected. I mean, we sat there that day just talking about the emotional difficulty, the trials, the overwhelming nature of losing a son, and he just talked about what they were going through. But he said to me, he said, you know, Roger, in that moment, I was so thankful for all the times that I had studied scripture. I was so thankful for every class that I ever took in seminary because in that moment of devastation, it would have been too late to pick up the Bible and to try to read the whole thing and figure it all out. But I'm so thankful for the foundation of knowing God's word, knowing who God was, and being able to see my life through that lens. And just so you know, We need to be people that study scripture so that when we fail these devastating moments, we know how to think about things. We know how to approach it. And what's beyond that is there are people in our life that are going to go through huge trials, struggles, and difficulties who haven't spent time studying scripture, who don't know God. And for those of us who do, it's our job to show up and lovingly and graciously tell them the truth. You know, there are so many people as they try to face trials and difficulty, they just kind of make things up that they think will be helpful, and then they say that. And and either to themselves or people who are trying to be helpful just kind of make stuff up and they just say it to people. We should never be people that are just making things up for moments of difficulty. It's our job to be people who tell people the truth 
who tell them what God has said. And so this morning, let's see what James says about trials. I'm going to give you five reasons that you should rejoice in trials. And so here's the five. I'll just give them to you up front. First, it's because God tells you to. And I've been here a little while, but you know that I think that if God says you're supposed to do something, then that's what you're supposed to do. And we don't have to figure out if we think it's the best thing or not. It actually doesn't matter what we think. It's our job to do whatever God tells us. The second thing is because trials produce steadfast maturity if we let them. And a third reason is because when we pray in faith, God gives us the wisdom we need to approach trials. And because trials give us perspective on our circumstances and because ultimately all trials result in blessing. So the first one is that God tells us to, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's read in James chapter 1 verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now he is writing to two Christians, and he's writing to Christians that are struggling. There was a prophecy in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, that there was going to be this worldwide famine. And so these Jews, they become Christians. So James has written to Jewish believers, and they're spread out because of persecution, and they're struggling. They've moved to a new place, and they're in a famine, and there's all kinds of difficulties. And when you think about that, it's amazing going through the book of James the way he uses their current circumstances in their life. Like, for example, the illustration of dead faith is if somebody comes to you without food and clothes and you say, be warmed and be filled, be on your way, what good is that? In the same way, faith without works is dead. I won't preach that sermon. I'm not there yet. But he uses this illustration that's probably something they were facing. The whole struggle in the book of James of showing preference to people that are rich. If you're starving and you have no food and some rich guy walks in, it's like, I want to be friends with him because if I'm hungry, maybe he'll share some of his food. Like there was all kinds of pressure that was going on with just the, the favoritism that was being showed. So these people are struggling with trials. And James writes to them, verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, talking to them as believers, when you meet various, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's interesting, count it all joy when you have, meet trials of various kinds. There are all different kinds of trials that we face, aren't there? Sometimes we struggle physically, sometimes we're struggling with employment, sometimes it's relational difficulty, sometimes somebody we love is struggling and that brings a trial into our life. There's all kinds of trials that we're going to face and this covers every single one of them. And you are to count it all joy in every trial that you face. God tells us to do it. It's a, it's a command. Now, that first word, it says count. That's a word for consider, to think. And so he's telling us this is how to think about things in your life. You know, if you think about it, the way we think about things is displayed in how we feel and what we do. In fact, one of the reasons I like going through trials is because sometimes I find out that I don't really believe the things I think I believe. And, and in this last year, there have been, I've faced some real challenges, and I felt a lot of difficulty and concern and things like that. And I just think to myself, okay, wait a second. I believe that these things are true. And if these things are true, I should not feel how I feel. And so I think, okay. I need to focus on this, and I need to think rightly. I was thinking about the way I approach physical difficulty. I, I approach it pretty well. Basically, the physical difficulties that I've faced so far, you got to be careful saying you handle things well because then may, God may show you that you're not so good at that. I ended up having to have knee surgery on both of my knees, and it was a really painful surgery, and I enjoyed it, and I was looking forward to it. <laughs> And in fact, when I went to the surgery, I said to the doctor, I said, I know you normally knock people out for this, but is there any way I could stay awake? Because I want to watch. And uh, he's like, yeah, sure. And so on the first knee, he had it up on the screen, and he gave me a lot of drugs to not, so I wouldn't have anxiety, and I was really sleepy. I was so sleepy. I was trying to stay awake. I finally gave up. And the next time around, I said, hey, don't give me so much of that, because I want to watch. And I was thinking about how fun. Now, it was very painful. You know, I could barely walk. 
But it was really painful, and I enjoyed it. It was like, hey, this is a new experience, and I'm going to get to go through something. And, kind of, and, and so I'm thinking to myself this last year, how come in that situation I can look at it and go, this is kind of exciting. How is this going to work out? But in this other thing I'm going through, it's really difficult. It's really stressful. Maybe going to a meeting that you know is going to be a really challenging meeting. Why can't you, why instead of being stressed out about it, can't you just go and say, this is fun. Hey, I'm going to honor the Lord no matter what is done or said. I'm going to please the Lord. I'm not going to take anything personally. I'm just going to love the people that God's put around me. And I'm going to take a step back and just see, I wonder how the Lord will work in this. Kind of exciting. Let's see what happens. We don't know. Why in one situation do I approach it that way and others I don't? Well, what the Bible tells us is in every single trial, you are to consider it all joy. So I, I work on changing the way I think about things. Look, this is actually part of living out the Christian life. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what, the will, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. See, we're supposed to renew our mind. That's, as believers, that's what we do. We take all the things we believe that aren't true and set them to the side, and we take all the things that are true and we make them front and center. So that's how we're supposed to approach life. That's what Christians do. By the way, that's what the church does. That's why it doesn't matter if you go to Sunday school or youth group, or an adult Sunday school class, or church on Sunday morning, everywhere we open up the Bible, we read it, we teach it, we try to understand it correctly, because that's how we renew our mind. That's the main job of the church. The church is not just an educational institution, but it is an educational institution, because we need to learn to think about God correctly, ourselves correctly, and our circumstances correctly. It is amazing how many thinking words are in this passage? Like, look at this. Count it. That's to consider. For you know. Um, wisdom. That's wisdom. Faith. Doubting is not being sure what you know. Suppose. That's a thinking word. Being double-minded. The brother of lowly circumstances is to consider his high position. The rich man is supposed to think about his humiliation. Like those are opposites. And James is just saying, think differently. And then at the very end, he wraps it all up by saying, you are blessed. This is how to think about trials in your life. This whole thing is full of thinking words. So let's just consider all joy. So I looked up the word joy. And it's used about 59 times. 46 of them are just about really good things. When you see somebody you love that you, that you miss, it's just the things that just make you excited and happy and, and that make you feel blessed. That's mostly how it's used. And then there's 13 times where it's used kind of like it is here, where maybe it's not how we would naturally face something. But he says, no, you need to count that joyful. Like, for example, one of the other places is discipline. When you're disciplined, It'll later reap joy. It's, it's something that we should be thankful for when we're disciplined because it's a benefit. It's a blessing in our life. And so this word for joy, to count it all joy, it, it's deep. It is not based on circumstances. It's not just casual happiness. But joy is, I was about to face this knee surgery, and I'm thinking this is kind of cool. I was looking forward to it. And sometimes you can have joy in the midst of sorrow. You can be really sad. I remember when my dad passed away. In some ways, it was overwhelming to me emotionally. But at the same time, I was thankful and I was happy because he knew the Lord. And, and so it was a sad time, but it was a joyful time. And so we need to be people that are people of joy. There's various kinds of trials. Now, it's always e easier later sometimes to look back on difficult times and say, I'm thankful for that, but the trick is to be thankful while you're going through it. Uh, it's a little bit harder, isn't it? I just want you to know, when God tells us to do something, it can be done. And considering it joy, taking a step back, viewing life the way you're supposed to view it, you can do that. And I just want to show you a couple quick examples of people who did. It's one of the reasons I love the Bible is it shows plenty of people who fail, like me, but it also shows people who do it well, and it reminds me that whatever God tells me to do is realistic, and I can do it with the help of the Holy Spirit. 
So, the apostles go out in Acts chapter 5, the beginning of the church, and they're preaching, and it says they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So they're being punished, persecuted, suffering, and they're glad, hey, for Jesus' sake, we get to suffer. So they did it. Um, How about this one? Maybe a little more difficult. Acts chapter 16, you have Paul and Silas, and they're preaching. And as Paul's preaching, there's this demon-possessed woman that keeps saying things, and she's irritating Paul. And so finally he says, all right, he casts a demon out of this woman. And all of a sudden, her masters realize uh, she's not going to be able to do fortune-telling anymore. We're not going to be able to make money anymore. And so they go rile everybody up and get them mad at Paul and Silas. And it says that, so you have the leaders that they start attacking them. And then it says, and the crowd joined in in attacking them. And they ripped their clothes off them. And they beat them with rods. And they inflicted many blows upon them. And then they threw them in prison. Uh, If somebody grabbed you, ripped your clothes off, beat you with rods for quite a bit, would you be thinking, I love these people. I'm joyful and I'm thankful to be here. Uh, Or would you be mad at people? Uh, Would you be mad at God? Would you say, God, I've dedicated my whole life to serving you. I go out and preach the gospel and look what happens. Aren't you supposed to be protecting me and taking care of me? But their reaction, it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And what you find out is God uses that because then there's this great earthquake. The gates open up. The prisoner wakes up. And he thinks everybody's escaped. He gets a sword. He's about to kill himself because he knows that whatever was going to happen to those prisoners is now going to happen to him. And he's like, I just want out. And right before he kills himself, Paul yells out, hey, we're all here. You're okay. You don't need to kill yourself. We all stayed here. And he takes them home and he just says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul preaches to them and he and his entire household become believers. So it just for us to remember, these were people just like us. And God told them what to do and they did it. And we know from Scripture, they didn't all always do everything they were supposed to do, right? We see their failure as well. But this is just a reminder that what God tells us to do, we can do. And so if God tells us to be joyful, then it's our job to be joyful. So we do it because God tells us to. We also do it because trials produce steadfast maturity if we let them. So I was thinking about um, my second daughter, Julianne, and when she would go through difficulties in her life, the most insignificant things were just amazingly difficult for her. And I mean, it was so bad that we would go to the dentist and they would just send us home. Like she couldn't handle any kind of difficulty. In fact, when I was a little kid, I used to look forward to going to the dentist because I got this bubblegum stuff they'd put in your mouth, the bubblegum fluoride, and I thought, that's kind of cool. They told me it was bubblegum. Well, for Julianne, when they put that in her mouth, you'd think they just put battery acid on her tongue. <laughs> She'd sit there going, ah! You know, she was like wailing and just in difficulty, and she needed some fillings. And a nurse walks in with this needle, and they're going to give her feelings, and she is just freaking out. And they sent us home, and after the third time... I helped her figure out how to stay in that seat. I won't even tell you the story. You won't like me <laughs> if, if I tell you. And since we're new, I'm going to give it some time before I let it all out. <laughs> so at the same time, there was this kid in our church that was about her age who had gone through like five or six really painful surgeries. And I'm just thinking about the contrast. Juliana's like, her life is ending because she has to have bubblegum-flavored fluoride. And this kid's going through one surgery after another, a major surgery, and is just facing it and seems to be doing well. See, trials produce endurance. The more we go through, the more we're able to handle. And you want to know, one of the things I thought about was, this is hard for him, but this is also hard for her. And sometimes we can look at people that are going through trials and we can think, why is this so hard on you? I went through something way worse. 
No, as we go through things, we all face things differently and to different degrees. And what's hard for every person is hard for every person. And, and I've thought through things that just seemed overwhelming to me. And then I just think about people that are going through so much more serious things. And so trials, we consider it joy because what's hard for you now won't be so hard later. Um, I remember when Michelle and I had a kid, Jessica, it was a lot of work. And we were just walking around going to church going, how come nobody told us how hard this is? A kid crying all the time and all this work. It's like I'd come home from, from church sometimes and Michelle's still in her pajamas. and She's like, I haven't gotten dressed and there's my half-empty cup of coffee. I haven't been able to drink a cup of coffee yet. And we got one kid and we're walking around with people. They got three. And we're like, how did they do that? And by the way, everybody keeps that a secret. It's not until you have a kid that you realize how hard it is. And after we had four, that was really hard. And we look back to the days when we had one, two, and three and thought, boy, that was so easy. That's life. The more you go through, the stronger you get if you have the right attitude. I want to just point out a few quick things. First, knowing. That is a thinking word. We know that it's true because God says it's true. So we know that the trials are good for us. Knowing that the testing of your faith, realize that everything you do in life is a test. It's displaying something. But it's the testing of your faith. As we go through things, the way that we respond to them is an expression of how we're doing spiritually. It's an expression of our faith. And so this, a Christian faces things differently than an unbeliever does. And that it builds your ability, it, and it says that... Um, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's the ability to just keep going, to bear up, to never give up, to rely on Christ. Verse 4 says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's just a way to say mature, that you'll be grown up. And you know what? You have to let trials affect you that way. So I got a question. If I had a sponge, I heard this from Vince back there, this illustration. But if I had a sponge and I squeezed it and ink came out of it, let me just ask you, why'd the ink come out? Why? Okay. So I heard two answers. And in a sense, you're both right. One is because you squeezed it. Another one says because there was ink in there. If you take a sponge with no ink and you squeeze it, is ink going to come out? So think about this. In your life, when you face difficulty, you're being squeezed. And what is really inside of you comes out. You ever think about that? I didn't eat. That's why I was grumpy. Um, I had a really hard day and didn't sleep. That's why I yelled at you. A lot of times we think that it's our circumstances that create our behavior. No, the difficulties, the trials in your life show you what's inside. And the question is, what are you going to do with what you see? You know, James just says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you want to know what's in your heart, just listen to what you say. That's what's in your heart. When you go through difficulty, the real you comes out. And so you've got a choice. The other thing, too, is that if you squeeze that and ink comes out, you know, that's part of what God's doing in trials is getting some of that ink out of us. But we got to look at it for what it is and say, okay, I'm getting squeezed and here's how I think and this is how I feel and what do I need to know from Scripture and what can I apply to respond differently? And so God is blessing us sometimes through trials, just letting us realize what's really in us. For me, some of the trials I've gone through, God allowing me to see what's really in me and then to respond to that rightly. You know, some people have one problem after another, and they're no better for it. There are other people who the more they go through, the more gracious, the more loving, the more compassionate, the more inspiring they are. One man said it this way, our values determine our evaluations. If we value comfort more than character, then trials will upset us. If we value the material and the physical more than the spiritual, we will not be able to count it all joy. If we live only for the present and forget the future, the trials will make us bitter, not better. 
well, you're all believers here, so trials are going to make you better. Look at verse 5. Or verse, yeah, let's look at verse 5. Um, it says this, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we face difficulties and trials, God is there. God is there to give us the wisdom that we need to get through it. If we ask in faith without any doubting. Now, wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. It's not just knowing things. Wisdom is applying the things that you know. And in a sense, you're a fool if you don't know the right thing to do. But you want to know who the greatest fool is? The person who knows the right thing to do but doesn't do it? That's an even bigger fool than the person who doesn't know. Wisdom is not just having facts. It's not just information. It's the right application of those things. And so that's what wisdom is. And if we lack wisdom, we can ask God who will give to us generously without reproach. God doesn't go, you idiot, you don't know this already. God loves us. He's gracious to us. He pours out help that we need. If we ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. When we ask, we ask in faith. We know that God's good. Hebrews eleven six. He who comes to God must know that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I remember um, one time in the Gospels, a guy comes to Jesus and he says, my son's demon-possessed. It just throws him into the fire all the time. Um, If you can, would you help me? You want to know what Jesus says to him? Jesus says, "Um, if you can? As believers, we go to God. We know that he loves us. We know that he cares about us. We know he has the, the ability to do whatever he wants And so we go to him and we ask in faith, knowing that he will give us the help we need. I was thinking about Job. Job really struggled in his life. And uh, Job was a righteous man. In fact, the Bible tells us he was the most righteous man on earth. And Satan says, God says, have you seen my servant Job? And God says, yeah, he, he loves me. He's pretty awesome. And Satan goes, of course, you've made everything good in his life. But take away his stuff and he'll curse you. So God says to Satan, okay, you can take away all his stuff. Now, one of the things I want you to realize in that, God didn't hurt Job, but God let Satan hurt Job. So in a sense, who was behind that? God, right? God wasn't responsible for the evil, but he allowed it. Satan could have done nothing to Job without God's permission, It's not like Satan's doing his thing and God's like, oh man, someday I'll stop that. I don't know how. God is in control of every single thing. And then you see in in just the blink of an eye what Satan had always wanted to do to Job. Satan times it perfectly where all of his kids die and he loses all his stuff. And he times it perfectly so that as people are running from different areas, one guy shows up and said, hey, hey, Job, all your kids died over here. And then while he's still talking, the next guy comes and says, and you lost all your stuff here. And while he's standing, it's like Satan times it perfectly. So in a second, Job hears that he's lost everything. And Job falls on the ground. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'm going to return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was really what was in Job's heart. He loses everything. And then Satan says, yeah, you took all his stuff, but you didn't physically hurt him. And so um, God says, okay, you can hurt him, but you can't kill him. And so we find out next, Job's got boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot. And he's in agony. He just gets some clay pot and scrapes it. And his wife comes up to him and says, Job, dude, you still going to hold on to your, your uh, integrity? Just curse God and die. Like that's his encouragement from his wife. And he says, woman, you are foolish. Shall we accept good from the hand of God and not evil? 
And in all of that, Job doesn't sin with his lips. And I've heard some people say, well, he didn't sin in his lips, but he's probably sinning in his heart. No, your mouth is a reflection of what is in your heart. Job didn't sin. But then I always think, what would happen if Job, the book of Job ended right then? Um, God would have said, hey, I won. Look, Job's awesome, which he does anyway. But God lets it go on for, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 37, and he's surrounded by people that just pound him over and over with really bad advice. This is happening to you because you're a sinful person, and you just need to repent of your sin. That's why all this is happening. And it just goes on and on. And Job is praying, God, I need help. I need help. Tell me what is going on. I need my day in court. What is going on here? And Job just keeps asking, and it just seems like God isn't there. Now, if we ask for wisdom, God always will give us wisdom, but it comes in God's time, not ours. And part of the test for Job is how will you handle the silence? And Job never lost his hope or his faith in Christ. And so we know his his faith actually in Job, he talks about his redeemer, which that's a huge thing to think about because details weren't given about Christ, like all that revelation hadn't happened yet. But Job knows about that. And so he's a person And we need to learn from that, that anytime we ask in faith, God will give us the wisdom we need, but it doesn't always come in our way and at our time. Sometimes it feels like God is silent, but he never is. Here's a fourth reason, it's in verse 9 through 11, that we need to rejoice in trials. It says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass, and its flower falls off and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Trials give us a perspective on our circumstances. If you're poor and you find out you have a fatal disease, you're dying in a week or two weeks or in a month. Or you're rich and you find out you have a fatal disease, you're dying in two months or a month or whatever it is. Um, That puts a perspective on everything. And I just want you to know that you are valuable because you're made in God's image. That's what gives you value. What you have doesn't give you value. What you can do doesn't give you value. And in this life, sometimes we look at people and we value people based on what they have or what they can do or how talented they are. And we don't just take a step back and say, no, all of your value comes because you are a person who is made in God's image. And so trials sometimes help us think about those things because in trials we lose things. And in trials, things happen that let us realize It doesn't matter how much I have or how much I don't have. What I need is the Lord. I need his love. I need care from the body of Christ. And one of the things I found is sometimes you'll meet people that are respecters of persons. And if they find out that you're important, then they care about you. If you're not important, they don't give you the time of day. And so there's some people who have those attitudes. What I think is interesting is sometimes those people, sometimes you'll have poor people that look up to rich people, but when they ever become rich, then they think really highly of themselves. See, what you think makes other people important will also be what make you think you're important. And so when we realize that everybody's value, it's not based on what you can do or what you have, it's based on the fact that you are made in God's image, and trials helps us see that, like Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. Here's the fifth thing. Ultimately, God will bless you through your trials. Blessed, that's happy, the word for happy. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For once he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. You know what the crown of life is? That's the reward that believers get. That's eternal life. And so in a sense, here's what you need to realize. Your entire life is a test. Jesus says, 
in this life, you will have tribulation. So this life is difficult. The entire life is a, is a test. And, and God does test us through our trials. By the way, he also tra- tests us through our material blessings. You know, Solomon and David, actually, you think about David. He did wonderfully as long as he was being persecuted. The moment everything was good in his life and he was rich and had no problems, he has an affair with Bathsheba and murders somebody. So David could handle trials but couldn't handle blessing. How about Solomon? When he was old, all his wives led his heart away from the Lord. And God says, I'm ripping the kingdom out of your hands. And I'm gonna, but not in your lifetime because of your dad. I'm going to rip it out of your son's light, hands. And some people can handle difficulty but can't handle blessing. But all of life is going to have tribula- tribulations. It's all going to have difficulties. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, the eternal life, which God has promised to those who love him. Philippians 1.6, you don't have to worry if you're a believer about whether or not you can make it. It's God's strength that gets us where we need to be. Philippians 1.6 says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I don't think... I can handle whatever difficulty God throws my way. I'm thankful that God will handle in my life whatever trials he allows me to go through. God's the one who we rely on and who we trust. So the book of Job, God blesses Job. I think a lot of people misunderstand the book of Job. They misunderstand what the difficulty and what the blessing is. So let me just uh, tell you what happens. So Job's going through all this difficulty Job actually feels like, God, you're not fair. What you've done to me is wrong. The whole book of Job is Job's cry to go to court. He's saying, I want to go to court. I want my hearing because I didn't do anything wrong to deserve this. And God takes Job past what he thinks he can handle. In fact, Job says, I cursed the day I was born. Job wanted to die. I think it's interesting in Scripture, there's a lot of people who feel that way but nobody kills themselves. That's a different story for another day. But Job despairs and just says, I wish I wasn't even alive. And God, what you're doing is not fair. And so at the end of the book, Job's saying, I want to understand. I want to be told what happened. At the end of the book, Job 38, 1 through 3, then the Lord answered Job. And basically God says to him, "Um, you're asking me to explain myself to you? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? He starts questioning Job, asking Job all these things. What about this? What about this? You don't know this. You don't know that. I do this. I do that. God just talks about himself and how great he is. And he basically says to Job, Job, uh, first of all, I'm in charge and I don't explain to you. I don't answer to you. Uh, Secondly, if I did answer to you, you're not smart enough to understand it anyway. So it would be a waste of my time. And so he goes on for two, two chapters and just says, Job, who do you think you are to question me? And then in Job chapter 40, Job says, I lay my hand on my mouth. I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, okay, uh, I won't say anything else. He basically says, I, I repent. And God just says, yeah, I'm not finished with you yet. And then he goes on for another two chapters talking about himself and how great he is. And there is where we see the greatest gift that God gave Job. This was it right here. Job 42, 1 through 5, Job repents, and he just says, God, I have no idea what I'm saying. I have no right to question you or anything that you do. But then he says this, before I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's the gift at the end of the book of Job is that God says, through your trials, through your difficulty, I'm going to give myself to you. Some of the difficulties and struggles, my greatest struggles that I've gone through in life, God has given himself to me. I've prayed and God's answered my prayer. Other people have prayed for me. I'll receive a text out of the blue with a passage in it that is exactly what I needed to hear from somebody who doesn't even know what I'm going through. And I just, in it, I'm just like, okay, God, you are good, 
and it's like you just, you see God, you're, everything is good and you have everything, are taking everything under control and you care about me and you love me and you are pouring out goodness in my life. And it's in our trials when we respond to them properly that God blesses us and gives himself to us if we think and respond correctly in them, if we understand them the way God wants us to. And then at the very end, God gives Job more kids and gives him more wealth than he had before. That was not the great gift in the book of Job. The gift of himself was. But God also loves us, and even though he's going to bless us in eternity, a lot of times he's just so good, he just blesses us now. And we see that poured out in Job's life as he gets all these other things. And so as, as we consider these things, we need to know that God has huge blessings for us in our trials. And so we need to try to shift our mindset. Instead of saying, no, I wanted this. No, I wanted this to happen. No, God, this isn't my timing. No, this isn't the way you should be managing the world and my life and those things. We need to just humbly come before God and say, Lord, whatever you have for me, I embrace that. I love it. I'm excited to see what you're going to do. And that needs to be our mentality, and it isn't always And so we need to just know that God loves us. He will use every trial. And it's a a decision for us to make in how we will respond. Um, We're going to shift our time now. And we're just going to consider the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take communion in, in a moment. There are tables up front. And we're just remembering right now that Jesus died for us. It's the reason we have God's blessing in his favor is because Jesus died and and he allows us to have his riches. He lived, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And as we take this, we remember that, that our life is not based on how well we perform. Our life is based on what Jesus has done for us. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When you're ready, you can go forward and and take the cup and the bread. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness and the way that you love us and the way your goodness is expressed. And Lord, so much of life is just a blessing and it's just joyful and it's just good. And Lord, every once in a while, you let us go through trials. Sometimes difficulty can seem large and overwhelming. And yet, Lord, we know that you're in it and you give us lots of good things and that actually includes those things that are a trial. And Lord, as we consider the reason for that and basically our standing before you, it comes from Christ. And Lord, I just thank you so much that nothing we do improves our standing before you. Uh, Jesus has accomplished it all. As we take this bread and cup, pray that you would help us to really dwell and remember the sacrifice that he made for us in your name. Amen.